I don't know what it is about the cello, but it has always captured my imagination. I remember being a very young girl growing up in London, England, and regularly searching through my parents' huge record collection until I found one particular album, Jacqueline Mary Dupre's recording on his master's voice label of favorite cello concertos. I would gingerly slip that vinyl out of its paper cover, being ever so careful not to get my little greasy fingers on the vinyl, and then I would get up on my tippy toes and re reach way down into that console, put it on the turntable, lift the arm, put the needle down as gently as my little stretched arm could accomplish, and then I would just sit. And all of a sudden, Dvorak and Elgar and Hayden, Haydn and Schumann would flood me with joy. I remember staring admiringly at the album cover, Jacqueline's thick blonde hair, her youthful face, her warm smile, and these piercing eyes that drew me into the beauty of her world. When multiple sclerosis forced her to stop performing at 28, I remember crying myself to sleep. And then there is Yo-Yo Ma, who in April took his cello to the Juarez-Lincoln International Bridge, which connects Texas and Mexico, saying, I have lived my life at the borders, between cultures, between disciplines, between musics, between generations. In culture, we build bridges, not walls. A country is not a hotel. It's not full. I wonder how many children were watching him, just as I was, one of the world's premier cellists, using his gift for love. So it shouldn't be a surprise that my eyes caught a headline in last week's Thursday's Washington Post. Gifts of love with no strings. Underneath a picture of a young African-American cellist alone in a theater dressing room. Perhaps you read the powerful story by Alison Klein also of the principal cellist right here at George Mason Orchestra. It turns out that this was the second story about Eddie Adams in the Washington Post. The first, two weeks earlier, had described the bleak circumstances of Eddie's childhood here in Northern Virginia and how the cello had been his lifeline. It chronicled the story of a resilient 20-year-old college student who did not have the money to buy textbooks and borrowed them from friends, who did not have the money to purchase or rent a cello and borrowed one whenever he performed. The first story ran on April 13th, and the money began to pour in. As of last Wednesday, hundreds of people had donated over $140,000 to a GoFundMe account in Adam's name and left encouraging comments telling him his life was worthy, he was gifted, and they couldn't wait to hear more. Two people are buying him cellos. One couple bought him a custom-fitted suit from which he is smiling and beaming in one of the photographs in the article. And then other people began to offer their gifts. One married couple invited him to dinner when they heard specifically that he had been targeted by family 
for the jokes that they threw at him about getting good grades and acting white. This couple wrote, we are retired African-American physicians who have had our struggles with being white acting high achievers. The dinner is next week. The city of Alexandria has booked Adams to play at a homeless shelter. And the modest and admittedly shy Adams says he is finding the attention challenging. I have anxiety, he says, about these types of things, but I should get used to it because it is all really good. I'm trying not to think about it because finals are coming up and I still need to study and practice as much as before. I need to focus on schoolwork because that is the whole purpose of it all. At a time when there is very little good news in the headlines, this story of a courageous cellist and public generosity is redeeming in its own right. On a day when we are commemorating the apostles of Philip and James, I want us to pay particularly close attention to Adam's strings professor and his mentor, June Huang. She is responsible for Adam's thriving. From the article, she says, Huang first heard Adams play at an audition of the school's orchestra. She dropped her pencil and forgot to score his performance because she found it so soulful and beautiful. Huang made a commitment to do what she could do to support Adams, including introducing her, him to her network in the community. It was a 12-year-old boy, a private violin student of hers, Noah Pan Steer, who set up that GoFundMe account over a year ago. When Noah himself turned 13 and had his own bar mitzvah, he asked for no presents but donations to that fund, setting a goal, an ambitious goal of $10,000, which he accomplished. Today, Huang serves as the point person, supporting and teaching Adams as best she can, coordinating his donations, recruiting pro bono guidance from estate planners, tax lawyers, and accountants to be sure that the new resources are safe and will last. Huang is doing what good teachers do. She is thinking about the future. She is gathering those people and those resources. She is identifying mentors. She's not trying to do it all on her own. She is not pretending she is an expert in things she is not. She is putting Adam's dignity first and his uncertainty second, believing fully that God is doing a great thing in his life. She is rejoicing that the end of her competence is the beginning of the presence of other adults in Adam's life. She says, I feel a great sense of relief being part of a worthy cause. It's very life-affirming. I knew there's a limit to what I can provide for Eddie. I needed a community behind him. I'm also not surprised to learn that a 12-year-old Noah, surrounded by role models like his parents and his violin teacher, has become a remarkable person. Teachers who empty themselves fill their students with grace and gift. And if it's not too late in the year for a theological term, you all know this as kenosis. Huang had started the Go if Huang had started the GoFundMe page herself, the boy with the bar mitzvah would not be part of this miracle. If she had tried to balance the books, one of the financial advisors now guiding Adams 
would himself have been left behind. If she had looked the other way, hundreds and hundreds of individuals never would have heard the invitation to make a lasting difference in Adam's life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That second phrase here in the farewell discourse of the Gospel of John is famously problematic. I share New Testament scholar Jamie Clark Soules' view that our historical situation is starkly different from the original first-century Johannine community that led John to think in particularly binary, exclusivistic, and oppositional categories. What I hear is Jesus explaining three dimensions of vocation that are essentially interconnected, drawing us into the heart of God. In my experience, they describe the vocation of both the transformative teacher and the flourishing student. For any fair-minded person, discovering and admitting the truth about ourselves is too much to bear alone. What's right? What's wrong? What is done? What is left undone? Any search for truth shows us we need a way through it and a way to live with it. When we realize that there is a way, what does it lead to? We find deep within ourselves a longing for life. But what is life? It is more than a truth. It is more than a way. It is a person living in truth on a way who shares life with others. It is in relationship to others that we find truth and choose a way. Truth without a way is unbearable. And a way without truth is deceitful. What is true and how to act are things we discern in the life of a community. When we meet Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of all three of these longings in us, longing for a way, longing for truth, and longing for life, we experience the freedom of vocation which is to know our own longings and to seek their fulfillment. We will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. We do not have to look far to see the consequences of trying to live life without vocation, to live life not rooted in community. Whether it is truly an epidemic, as some authors argue, or simply a crisis of our times, loneliness is killing Americans. Rigorous epidemiological studies have linked loneliness and social isolation to heart disease, cancer, depression, diabetes, and suicide. Vivek Murphy, the former United States Surgeon General, has written that the loneliness and social isolation today are associated with a reduction in the lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than associated with obesity. There is much to analyze and parse in this data. Plenty of blame is being cast on rampant individualism, competitive consumerism, and the rise of communication technologies. Whatever the cause, 
I know we are witnessing a steady decline in social capital. The networks of relationships among people who live and work in a particular society that enable the society to function well. We are sicker and we are dying earlier without a shared life. No one can make it to the Father without life. I have long viewed chronic loneliness as a sign of an unrealized vocation. In my experience, people who are living into all three longings and finding God in all of them are honoring their vocations, are transforming the lives of others. This is probably why I stood by my kitchen counter and wept as I read about Eddie Adams, the teacher, the Jewish boy, the cellist, the public, who were finding what was true and seeking a way. In each other, they found new life and that they were not alone. And the life they found is now part of my life. And I pray when I stop talking, it will be part of yours. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is not just describing himself. He is describing our deepest longings. The incarnation allows our longings to arrive in front of us, fulfilled in one person. When we meet Jesus, who is both fully human and fully divine, we recognize his longing and we experience his freedom. When we see the one who is both hunger and feast, he is familiar and he is transcendent. We drop our nets and we follow. We claim our Christian vocations. The tendency on this campus is to assume that the people thinking most about vocations are the students, and especially those who are about to graduate. But for all baptized people, every sunrise is a bursting of interrogatives. It is a chance to refresh and realign our own baptismal vocation. Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of the bread and in the prayers? Will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you strive for justice and peace among all people? and respect the dignity of every human being. Bearing witness to the truth, the way, and the life, as the apostles Philip and James ultimately did, is the fulfillment of our vocations as baptized Christians. Remember, in our tradition, meditating on the saints is not playing Simon Says, where we watch and attempt to repeat the vocation of another. Yo-Yo Ma went to the border, not to be a politician or a legal aid volunteer or a translator. A man who is now an Episcopalian and has spent his life following his longing went to the border and shared the freedom he has found in his vocation. 
people who gave to the GoFundMe account, did so to help Eddie, Eddie Adams live into his vocation. Noah, the young Jewish boy, found his vocation under the law to help Eddie then claim his. And my hero, Jun Huang, who had found a joyous vocation in her own life, generously believed and served the possibility that her students could find their own. The most effective teachers of vocation are those who have been freed by their own. May we who pray regularly in this space fulfill the vocation of being fully human and come to the Father together.